Hey Humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 343, and I had a conversation with Greg Walter. Greg is a research historian. He's an author of The Ridge Walkers, When Legend Becomes an Encounter. He's a Sasquatch enthusiast and a U.S. Coast Guard and Merchant Marine veteran. He experienced what he believes is a Bigfoot encounter and shares his story here, along with other cryptid uh, folklore and and stories of folks that he has met personally and uh, studied extensively. He's, uh, he's really deep-dived into so many fascinating subjects. I want to do a shout-out to Benjamin Cockman for introducing us, so thank you, Benjamin, and... Hope everybody had a good holiday season, and welcome to the new year, 2023. I have a really good feeling about this new year. I have no reason to think that other than it's got to be better than the last couple of years. So here's hoping. Uh, I hope it's really wonderful for you and, and successful and bountiful and full of love and all the good stuff. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out susanruth.com to learn about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you get your music. My most recent record is called All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Also, check out my relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet? It's on YouTube. I do it with my friend, sexologist and healthcare practitioner, Mara Edelman. It's really a fun time. YouTube.com slash Are We There Yet? podcast show. Check it out. Uh, We're doing a giveaway right now, so that's exciting. Go poke around on the old YouTubes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's super helpful, and I appreciate it. And I guess other than that, let's get into this. Thanks for listening. Be kind. Be well. Have a wonderful start to your new year. And here we go. Greg Walter, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. And shout out to Benjamin who connected us. A big shout out. Good. I want to start with where did you grow up? What was your upbringing? Because you're a very interesting human being. And I want to know what influenced you as a child. I um, So I grew up here in Southern California. And... You know, most of the kids of my age were, you know, wanting to go to rock concerts and so forth. And here I'm sitting in the corner of the classroom with an Audubon magazine dreaming of the Canyonlands and just going out into the Great Basin and into wild places. That was that was my love and soup du jour. Was your family supportive of that or did they worry about you wanting to go off into the wilderness? They actually were. My mother, uh, just at a very, very young age with us, uh, she took us for one year on, on, it was like once a month or even twice a month, they were Audubon field trips. And so, so we went bird watching. And of course, you know, as a kid, I was more fascinated with the reptiles than the amphibians and, um, you know, dragging home a gopher snake or something. And so that seemed to carry over even into this experience that I'll explain here soon, because as a child, I had it was a bathtub we set up with 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 big ice blocks and so forth like this, and we had these uh, giant salamanders, and and I just loved taking care of the salamanders. They were just such characters. Salamanders like it cold. I always figured uh, reptilian type creatures like heat the most. 
Salamanders, they do like the cold though, because they um, you know, they're 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 either amphibious or they're completely aquatic. And so, and so within that, you know, and the other thing too is that in Southern California, as you well know, especially in the summers, it gets hot. The other thing we had, and this was now verboten, but but we used to have the gopher tortoises. Yeah, they were like big turtles from out in the desert. And and it was so fun because we'd go down to the local market. And we'd say, no, we want the we want the outer leaves of the lettuce head, you know, which they throw out, you know, to make the iceberg lettuce look all pretty, which is actually the healthiest part of the lettuce head. Go figure. We throw out the healthiest part. And, and so and so within all this, so yeah, we'd bring these home and also cantaloupe. And you know, we'd break open a cantaloupe and the turtles just, I mean, they were dancing. Have you ever seen dancing turtles? <laughs> yeah, only while on drugs. Um, <laughs> were, are they called gopher turtles because they burrow? Yeah, they're gopher tortoises. They're actually in the tortoise family. I mean, so. tortoise, pardon, gopher tortoise because they burrow down. Yeah. Yeah. They're burrowing. They're out, you know, like they actually have a preserve for them. And there was a cool, there was a cool poster. I remember seeing, because I'm also involved in veterans writers group. Uh, down here in Southern California, and they had a poster in their office, and it showed that those with armor are protected by those with armor, and it was showing the tank and the tortoise, you know, because they're out there on the these military reserves, and, you know, and the military guys have gotten really into taking care of the tortoises, you mm -hmm. know, yeah, and so, and so if anybody wants to run them over, yes, people like to run them over. Well, they can face an Abrams tank as far as they're concerned. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, it's a, it's an interesting mix there, but it works and it protects the tortoises. I'll have to talk to someone for the show uh, that is a tor tortoise protector. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah, they're, they're out there. Um, You know, California City is one place, you know, out there in, in, in what I consider the heart of the Mojave. Um, there's different parts, you know, you know, as far as that goes, but, um, but the Mojave is a fascinating desert. Mm -hmm. um, there's five deserts in America. Um, and one of them is not quite in America. It's a Baja desert. Um, and that one's fascinating, unbelievable. But, but yeah, anyways. Yeah. So I, so I, so I grew up with a lot of nature around me. I did a lot of hikes in the San Gabriel mountains, uh, the San Bernardino mountains, uh, and, and then spreading outward from there. Did you study this stuff in college when you left home? Not, not per se. I did take some classes where we did where we did outdoor field trips, and also I became a it was a geology minor. A geology in Oregon is quite a fascinating story between the volcanics, and then and then and then over to the coastal, you know the the whole, and then that's what got me into the botany was the um, that whole piece of. Uh, basically the earth's mantle having risen to the surface that created in part that that whole range there in southwest oregon that is mineral rich and calcium poor and so so the, the plants that have adapted there mm -hmm. have survived for millennia they're also mm -hmm. some of the rarest plants in north america because of because of their survivability on that soil are they being protected yeah well, yeah yeah they are uh, to some degree you know i mean there's different there's different um, uh, botany groups that follow that, and, um, and and they're very good. One of the most beautiful places I had ever been to as a kid was Cannon Beach, Oregon. It's so pretty with those giant jets, and everything there is gold and purple and 
breathtaking, in my humble opinion. Well, on a side note, if you ever want to talk about, it's what they call the beeswax ships and the whole thing around the treasure there at Neocani Mountain and Neocani Mountain, which is just south of Cannon Beach. And um, that's There's a cool- supposed to be treasures there? Oh yeah, well there was a um, there was a galleon that came a, there was a galleon that came ashore. They think it was in 1693, I think. Um, there were several of them that you know because there was 250 years of Spanish trade coming from the Philippines, and you know with beeswax for the missions and the churches for the candles, and I mean bringing other goods and so forth. But they also were prone to either smuggling or bringing you know, these, these Spanish gold finger bars. And so, and this was a ship that somehow made it to shore. Many of them just disappeared, you know, even the whole flotilla. And, but in this case, they had this boat uh, come ashore and there were a couple of indicators of that. Um, one is that they were suspected of the treasure rocks. If you ever go to the Tillamook Museum, it's fantastic. They have these rocks with these carvings on them. And my friend Rock, who's a historian at, um, the Oregon Historical Society, you know, he said, no, 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 no. What it was, was that that was actually a survey marker to basically mark it was the westernmost point of Queen Elizabeth's, the Virginia patent. And so that that way, I mean, talk about a real estate deal. It was just all in North America or all of like the United States, such as it is all the way down to the 32nd parallel. And so that was on the 45th parallel. And um, and there's actually a map by this guy. He was a cartographer, William Blake, who made this map that showed the cartouche up there, which is like where all the lines emanate from. And that was right there, you know, right there at that 45th parallel. And so that was from Sir Francis Drake. And so in a way, was Oregon on the map and even visited before Plymouth Rock, you know, and the map called that out, you know, as far as, you know, as far as, and then that was Queen Elizabeth, Virginia patent, the West end of it. So pretty cool. That's really cool. (laughs) Did you know pretty early on what you wanted to do with your life? No, (laughs) Um, sort of. I mean, I, you know, because I joined the Coast Guard right out of high school. From there, I was stationed up on the Oregon coast. And that's what I write about in my book, The Ridgewalkers in Two Worlds. And so as far as my Coast Guard days there on the Oregon coast. And from that, I got into all kinds of mischief. But from that, we got into um, foraging and and um, uh, basically commercial mushroom picking. And so doing that for a living that actually for, for at least several years would pay my rent um for the money because what i was doing was shipping the mushrooms down to sac to san francisco to the gourmet produce uh, the wholesale market and so i was like a so i was like a direct picker with them and getting paid four times as much and so so it was good you know um and it was you know for like six to eight weeks out of the year and and um and i actually worked with a guy who who studied mushrooms to the point where he wrote a book it's called Poisonous and Hallucinogenic Mushroom Field Guide. And um, and that was by this guy, um, um, Gary Menser. And um, and so he was super adept at this stuff. And and um, but we got into truffling, we got into, you know, you know, several aspects of the Oregon white truffles and there the chanterelles, the matsutakis, the belites, all that. It was fun. Every uh, every season, my father would go out chanterelle picking, and I was so excited when I was old enough to go as well, and certainly carried it on to adulthood when I lived in the Pacific Northwest. It, it's so much fun. It's it's great to go searching for them, and they're delicious and yeah. extraordinarily expensive in the grocery store. 
Well, yeah. And, you know, James Beard, I mean, he gained some of his reputation between the mushrooms. And then from there, you'd wander onto the beach at a minus tide and go get the razor clams. And so, and, and so you had all of this shellfish life going on and, and then the mushrooms and then the berries and, you know, like this. And so it was, um, I think they considered for a time there that Oregon was the number two place in America where, where you could be successful at living off the land as far as being a forager. A number one at the time was Louisiana, and that got mucked up because of the oil industry and the whole that whole delta there with the Mississippi River, the pesticides, the nitrogen, all that stuff coming from all those those factory farms, and so it just it just changed their whole environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it used to be that I mean, like the shrimp down there and the the crawfish and the fish. I mean, everything was just so rich. Um, it, you know. it makes me quite sad to think of how people go to bed hungry in this country, that there's plenty of food to feed everyone many times over if we cared for the land that's giving it to us. Yeah. And that's a tricky one. And, you know, they dealt with this. I mean, that's what created the Dust Bowl. And, you know, and then, you know, in at least small part, you know, you know, falling into the Great Depression. And that's kind of what I talk about in my book is our ability to be sustainable on the land. One example I give are the salmon that come up the rivers where they used to come in like literally by the by the millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of salmon for over the course of like 200,000 years. And so they would come up, they would spawn and they would die while bear and other predators would go down, eat them, go up in the forests and purge and then go back down and eat again. Well, so they were making fish fertilizer to grow the world's largest vegetables. They're called redwoods. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, it was just this amazing life cycle, you know, between the fish, the forests, the animals, you know, all of these things happening. And yet in a hundred years, we seem to just walk right through the resource, starting mm-hmm. with the salmon. And, you know, now the big fight there is water. Yeah. Um, Bringing it back around to this this cryptid over my my right shoulder. Sasquatch. They can't see you. We're on audio only okay, for this show. Okay. Sasquatch. So imagine we have fires, okay? And these fires burn in an area that burn right adjacent to the river. And then the fires, um, they're 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 doing their containment lines. This actually happened last summer. And so they're doing their containment lines and everything like this. Well, a thunderstorm comes in and basically pours about three inches of rain on everything, puts the fire out, but it also washes the ash into the river. And when that happens, so now you've just introduced this massive amount of phosphorus into the river that, that displaces the oxygen, kills the fish for 20 miles. And, and so it's in this kind of scenario that, the the Sasquatch, there's an Indian name for him, but what it is is that the the way the natives handle this is that is that from time to time they go up to a place or even a even a few different places, but they go up to this place and they communicate with this thing. And what it does, it portends the future for them 
to to enable them to have food survivability and food security and that's the kind of thing that the sasquatch would explain that you know you're going to have you're going to have a travesty happen to your fish population and so you better plan another food source and you know and that that could apply to acorns where there's a blight on the acorns and they lose 50 percent of their acorns and these things have the ability to to teach them that that's why they're also called the teachers and so and so think of think of these cryptids as something that goes beyond just you know joe bob seeing them run through the woods that there's a lot more going on there as far as the people that have lived on the land for over the course of thousands of years and how not all of them but certain ones have a way of approaching these things they sing a song of introduction and then they sing a song seeking knowledge and so it's all done in their lingua, you know, in their linguistics. And, and every tribe is going to have a slightly different variation on this. But, but many of them, and, 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 and the shamans keep this, you know, they very much keep it under wraps. They do not want people to know this because it kind of steals their thunder as far as them being an effective shaman. And so, and so it's an interesting thought to this um, as far as, you know, and this includes their dances. This includes several things where they celebrate, you know, their ability to tap into this, this, this very deep part of nature and it served them well over, over the course of the last several centuries. Well, cryptid. So that, that falls under, um, and there's, yes, there's a whole society in New York city. They're called the society of cryptozoologic um resources or um what is it cryptozoologic um they they search for these things and they come in many different forms around the world sometimes they're small animals and sometimes they're a bird or or you know many times insects um uh, one of the one of the nice ladies i knew from southern oregon university uh she worked in the field of mushrooms and one of her grad students in a creek up by crater lake they found it was in the slow moving part of the creek. There were these logs out there and um, and they went out and looked, looked at the log and saw these mushrooms growing under the log in the water like this previously undiscovered. So, so that would, so that would have been um, cryptomycology, which is, you know, mycology being the study of mushrooms and related fungi. And so, yeah. That's when did you first become interested in Sasquatch or Bigfoot or that legend. Now, again, I grew up in the, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. The legend of this creature has been around forever. Uh, I think for most people who live in the Pacific Northwest, we heard tales from a very, very young age of its, of its existence. And uh, it's just part of the folklore of the Pacific Northwest. How did you get into it? Probably from hiking in a lot of areas where then the stories would come out. And as a, you know, innately curious person, like for instance, one of my favorite places to go up in the Gifford Pinchot, uh, just north of Hood River there was the Ape Cave. And so how did it get the name Ape Cave? You know, so, so yeah, and that's an Ape Canyon. And, you know, and so that, so that opened, so that opened one, one can of worms. And then at that time, you know, and it seems like this has been a building, I don't, I don't want to call that a craze, but perhaps an obsession with, 
you know, many people in America to, to pursue this and especially where they get a glimpse of it, or they, they think they hear something that just is unfamiliar to them and then they get obsessed. And so then they go on this, this quest almost to discover these things. And for me, it was a little different path because, because some of my favorite hiking areas were in these places and they were also sacred areas. And so within, within them being a sacred area, weird things happen. You know, I mean, this isn't, this isn't by accident. It's like we're walking in their church. And so it's, it's, a, um, and it's something that you want to be very careful about how you, how you move around out there, like what you do and, and um, you know, how you conduct yourself, I think. And you have had an experience with one of these creatures. Yes. Can you talk about it? I can. Um, I actually write about it in my book, The Ridgewalkers in Two Worlds. <laughs> yes. So, well, let's uh, start this. You wrote a book, The Ridgewalkers, about this part of the country, about your experiences out in the wild, and then your experience engaging with one of these. Yes. Sasquatch. Um, well, so what I did was I wrote it as a sci-fi magic realism. So I came up with characters, kind of a John Carter of Mars meets Avatar. And so so having fun with that within the sci-fi and storytelling world. And then what I decided to do in my new book, Ridgewalkers in Two Worlds, was to uh, include like a 2200 or 2300 word breakdown of my personal encounter, you know, step by step, blow by blow what happened. And basically, to make a really long story short, I was on a about a 60 mile pack trip. And I spent one night at a certain place, I burned some sage. And I think that might have released something into the ethers. Um, you know, bear can smell smoked salmon from miles. But but anyways, um, um, from there, I, I went back to my car, my pack, I repacked myself and split off on this on this 60 mile trip. And the first night was one that I camped at this meadow and there were these big cedars. You could smell, it was almost like the same smell in a classroom, you know, go up to the pencil sharpener and that smell of cedar. But these were living trees, 14 foot in diameter. There was a little grouping of these trees and there was a beautiful spring bubbling out. And I go over to it to get some water and I see this beautiful giant salamander. And I went, oh, wow, this is so cool. I picked him up and thanked him for being there and, you know, placed him back down very carefully and, and then went about my way. Well, that next night I would have this encounter. And then from there I did my hike and so forth. And the encounter, I mean, there's several details in that I can get into. The the thing there that that was like five years later, I was in a class and I and I was being taught by one of the elders. At lunch, I went over to him and said, Hey, what do you guys know about? He said, Well, you know, there's 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 this thing that the that the doctors or the shamans do where um they go up, they they pray in certain places and they go up, you know, it's this 20 mile kind of journey for them to go into the hills. And they know they're on the right track when they greet a salamander in a spring. And I'm like, I step back at that one and sit down. Um, because I hadn't mentioned anything about this to him, you know, and he's telling me now, and then that next night they would they would have an encounter. And when they would see the thing, they would call in like a song of introduction and a song seeking knowledge. And that's when there would be an exchange. And so, so hence the teacher. I mean, I'm having bells ringing 
you know, in my head as this guy is saying this, because it falls right in lockstep, except except this time, rather than Bigfoot, you know, meeting the medicine man and some some person of some person of knowledge. No, he gets the hippie backpacker, you know, and it's like, get, get out of here, kid, you know. Um, and but I mean the thing, so so the actual encounter was I was camped at this place, it was like an amphitheater, and the trail, there was a side trail that went up on a separate ridge line, taken off into a whole other like sub-wilderness in that area. But I put down my packs set up my camp, decided to go walk up to the ridge where there were some ponds up there, some real small like snow tarns. Um, and this was in early June, the same month as a full moon. This was in the 1990s. And so at any rate, I'm enjoying the view and watching the sunset. And 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 I come back down, decide to, decide to throw some water over my head. So I warm it up, go over to this rock and I look down and there's a footprint. And um, I'm going, okay, this is... This is not what I expected, but here we are. So I'm looking at this thing very carefully, and I I finished my you know, my washing, and and then and then sat down on a log, and was just sitting there watching the sun go down. And it was that time. Just it reminded me of the book Tales of Power, um, uh, Carlos Castaneda with Don Juan, and the whole thing around that time of power, that transition from light from from lightness to night and the power that happens then boom here this thing appears and it was right you know this amphitheater was was kind of semi-forested but pretty open so it's not like you know this thing was hunkered down or anything but it's like as though it appeared right in the right within the amphitheater with me you know probably about 80 feet away and i hear this crash 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 stomp stomp goes over to this other pond that has um, this is the other thing. We were on a geologic contact zone between dacite and serpentine. And so, and those are, that's another source of power, another, you know, interesting thing that could happen there with matrices and frequencies and all this kind of good stuff. And so, so at any rate, this thing goes over to this water, drinks, and I can hear him slurping. So in a way, my encounter was like for probably a minute and a half, maybe two minutes, most of that spent with him slurping water. And um, and then I hear a splash, 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 crash, crash, stomp, stomp. You know, he's doing this semicircle around me. And um, but he was about probably uh, I'm guessing like 80 to 100 feet away. And now the full moon hadn't come up yet. And it was rising, um, but but he was in the shadow of the ridge. And so it was still very dark. And the thing I could see him now, but I could see just a silhouette, you know, very athletic, very strong, probably probably eight and a half, maybe nine foot tall um, with a with a very steady stride, knew exactly where he was going. And then finally, he puts his eyes on me and these icy gray eyes, you know, so they weren't red, they were gray and they were that that ice, you know, that color of like that icy blue gray um, you know, like this. And I'd seen those eyes before and I couldn't remember where. Um, in later I would I would find a comic book that was a Tarzan and it had the gorilla, and that was him, you know, with those icy eyes like that. All right. So, anyways, this thing's staring at me and he's reading right through me. I mean, anything, anything that was on my mind, and I'm holding a flashlight and I get this, don't even think about it, you know, like don't you go putting that stupid light on me. Yeah, and so the thing just kept going. He dropped down the ridge or, you know, dropped down into the canyon. And the canyon was huge. I mean, it was, you know, it drops down a good 2,000 feet. 
And so he takes off just down slope. So I'm freaked out for the next two hours, finally go to sleep. He didn't come back. So he didn't throw any rocks at me, no sticks on the tent, no, you know, no growls, no, no tree knocks, nothing. Um, it, it was just this encounter that um, I just never seen anything like that before or since. And, um, and I'd gone out there a few times after that and, and there was no footprints, no, no, nothing. It was all, it was all very quiet. What was your sense of, aside from the fact that it felt obviously masculine, you said, but it, it felt like he was saying, don't shine that light on me. Did if did there, did it seem like a humanoid species in that it was a, a link to us? Did it feel to you like some other species entirely? Did it sounds like you feel that it was sentient and clairvoyant even? For years afterward, going into research, digging into lore, digging into all sorts of directions with this stuff. And, you know, there's been a couple of good books that have come out about this. And then the other thing, too, was also digging into their creation lore and also learning more about the little people. The key thing with them is that they're, they're the, you know, it's interesting how we're focused on Jesus, but we don't mention God. God, the immortals, the little people. And the little people, I'll show you a book. My friend up in up in Cave Junction, this guy was a park naturalist. He writes this book called American Elves. And it's based on the lore of 380 ethnic groups just throughout the Western Hemisphere. Okay. You should see the northern hemisphere, the southern hemisphere. Um, it's just, it's just these things, there's thousands of them and different iterations, and every tribe has a different story about them. Well, when you refer to they talking to you and the elder you went to see who told you about the salamander, which tribe is this that you're referring to? Ha! One of the things I committed myself to doing is um, and not is to not name places and not name tribes because I don't want to drag any any specific tribe tribe into this because you know and quite frankly it's very universal. And, you know, I mean, I could have been in Lithuania and, and had the same experience or, or similar when it comes to the little people. Sasquatch, Bigfoot's a little more like uh, regional centric. Well, there's well. Yeti, I suppose, the Earl Mountains and things like that. Yes. Yeah. So, so, and this is the thing is that even in our Greek mythology, you know, you can read about giants and little people. And so, so nothing, so nothing unusual there. And they are connected as in maybe the, the little people are somehow the protectors of the giants or vice versa. Well, or yeah, they work, you know, similar to, I mean, if I were to compare it with the organized religion model is that, you know, what's the relationship between Jesus and God? Okay. Son of God. Well, but, you know, and maybe in this scenario, it's not so much that, but they're very, very closely interconnected with one another. And that the little people, um, they come in many different, and, you know, and the one thing about this book, American Elves, is that it describes what I ran across and that there's two different types. You have land babies and water babies. And what I was, what I was holding was a shape-shifted water baby. Um, that's according to that book. And that's- a, So they're quite little. They can be, yeah, they can, I mean, they can morph into, you know, like all sorts of animals, birds, lizards, um, you know. So, according to lore, the salamander actually was one of the little people. Yes. Got it. I just want to make sure that it's, yeah, that I'm following. Yeah, yeah. And that's that 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 that's even in uh, some of the doctoral dissertations I've read on these tribes. 
Um, you know, one of my favorite places to do research is 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 the Anthropological Library at the University of California, Berkeley, both in linguistics and also in in the creation lore. You know, and in that in that whole field of you know these different these different iterations of these things. My friend John that wrote that book, so he has a friend up in Washington that works at Mount Rainier National Park. And one day, so this was in September, this was about three years ago, and he's out there maintaining a little, like a generator in a little shed. And, um, and this was a, this was like, this like mid-September snowfall. It was the first snowfall of the year. And so he's working on this thing and he hears these little footfalls, you know, like this. And he looks up and it's like, ah, and the thing, ah, well, it was, it was like half deer, half human, you know, about two and a half feet tall. It turns and just splits into a side canyon, boom, gone. And I mean, it was like a four second encounter. That's one of the little people. Yeah, they're they're spooky, you know, um, and powerful. <laughs> Have you run into people thinking you're crazy or not of sound mind or perhaps, Oh, he probably was on some of those mushrooms he picked. Well, and that would, that would, that would all, that would all stand to reason, but anybody that's done any, any kind of do research into this, especially with, you know, it's kind of like if, if we're going to talk about Bigfoot, you know, we're inevitably talking about these cryptids, let's call them, you know, because we don't have any scientific evidence of it. And so, and so, all right, so then how about let's talk to the oldest inhabitants, the first peoples on the landscape. And that could be anywhere. That could be in China. That could be, you know, and their relationship to that land and going into this, you know. And so and so I can't run with, you know, the guys with their hats on sideways saying, well, I saw him and he ran away. And, and that I'm not saying that they didn't see him. I'm just saying that, well, all right, so what would happen if you dug a little deeper and then dug deeper and dug deeper? as to why you had that encounter and what was that area. And, and I could give some other examples of this. Um, there's a book, there's a book that this guy Ron Moorhead wrote called Quantum Bigfoot, as far as you know, the quantum technology involved. And this is as we go into science, you know, we're learning more and more about these 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 quirks in science that have either been overlooked or we just haven't figured out yet. And so this is where it gets fascinating because the the thing he did was he made a taping of these because they they would go hunting in the southern Sierras and they found this place where they would camp and then they would be almost besieged by these by these big feet or bigfoot you know like there's several of them and they would and the bigfoot in the night would would yell back and forth to each other and so he started recording these sounds and and um everybody thought he was nuts too you know but but he had some some bona fide skeptics go out there with him and they were like this is for real. I mean, this is utterly bizarre. Well, so he's playing these sounds, and this was just like a year and a half ago. And um, and he played one of them where the thing was going, <laughs> making all this weird noise, yelling. And I went, <laughs> I remembered it was like three years before my encounter. I'm up at the high mountain lake and the and the beautiful peak. Some people had left earlier full moon rising and um and i heard this and it was like this scream you know across across the lake you know yelling and you know making these weird noises and then boom silence and you know i thought that must have been a coyote i mean i, I couldn't figure it out and the interesting thing here was that i'd never heard it since i'd never heard it before 
um, to this day, I didn't know what it was until I heard this Sierra sounds thing. And I went, holy smokes, that was it. You know, that was that was the glutterals. That was the sounds that I heard across the lake at that time. This was in 1993. I mean, I still remember this. And uh, because I never could, it never, it was a puzzle piece. It never fit into a puzzle. And so, and so, but the interesting thing with this, the fascinating thing was that, was that Ron did some research. He went down into central Mexico into a place where they spoke a certain type of language. In this case, it was the Hokan language. And because that was the closest he could relate the sounds to. Okay, well, I went. <laughs> so I look on a so I so I look on a native linguistic map of Northern California. Bingo, there was this 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 island of area where that's what they spoke was the Hokan language. And so I think that that's so you see, this is the thing is that this is this is an opportunity for Ron with me because I could actually um you know back his story or you know basically bring some provenance to it on the fact that on a totally remotely different place. You know, I'm hearing the same thing, and that same linguistic stock is located there. You know, Do so. you think that they are connected to humans on an offshoot path, or do you think they're whole other species that exist to as maybe caretakers? And then in that, as we find fossils of other species, why are there not fossils of the Bigfoot? Mm. Okay. Um, so I feel like what I agree with Ron on this, that what we're probably dealing with is some kind of a hybrid alien where, where this thing has the ability to step in and out of our world. Two cool discoveries back in July. One was, um, it was in the news and everything. One was the, that they discovered new particles within the Hadron Collider there in CERN, Switzerland. And I think that collider is going to be one of our keys to enter into this world, you know, stepping us closer to dimensional theory. Um, that was one. The other cool one was the first images coming back from the James Webb telescope and basically, you know, getting us closer to going into these galaxies and us finding a habitable planet. Yes, yeah, so we can go muck that one up. I'm kidding. So you think that they're maybe traveling throughout realm? It's not that they're maybe they just hunt on the planet, sort of like a predator, but maybe not so gory. Uh, it's interesting when you were telling this story about when you were speaking of the elves, mm -hmm. little people and the Sasquatch, it reminded me of stuff I've read about the tall, slender, pale aliens and the tiny grays that are, that run with them. Mm -hmm. Just reminded yep. me of that. Well, and, you know, once again, these shapes and, you know, these entities like this, you know, the thing that the thing that just blows my mind, and this is where it steps way beyond me, is it's so doggone universal that it's all over the world. I mean, it can be it can be in the Pacific Island chain. It can be in Japan. It can be, you know, any number of places. And what changed it, I mean, in the case of Ireland, you know, because they had altars set up for the little people and they used to worship them and so forth. Well, those were replaced with the statues of the saints. And so here comes organized religion into this. And, you know, and they've done a stellar, perfected job of basically quashing this thing. Well, those that's pagan belief. And, you know, no, there's the one true God over here. And this is what you need to follow. I mean, I think Allah says the same thing. I think Buddha says, you know, and so, you know, it's, it's this, it's this thing of where, you know, when we get into belief, I mean, this is, 
And this is where you like throw scientific inquiry out the window. But while we're on the path of science, you know, in a way I could be the most scientific skeptic as far as these things are some anthropoid living 24 seven on our, you know, you know, on our earthly plane, uh, because we don't have physical evidence or very little, or it's been suppressed. I mean, you know, there is stories of that, like the Lovelock cave one is a good one, you know, with the red haired giants. The- I don't know that tale. Oh, it's a, um, this was in Northern Nevada. They were Paiute Indians, I believe, or Shoshones. I think they were Paiute. And they were fighting these red-haired giants that were basically eating them, you know, and attacking them and stuff and dragging them back to this cave. And what they did was they took a bunch of tumbleweeds and stuff, and they, they approached the cave, and they cornered the giants in there and lit it on fire and, you know, killing them. And they had at one time, I think the Smithsonian has the skulls, you know, and some of the bone fragments and stuff from these guys. And they were these like nine foot tall giants with these elongated heads. And, you know, and that's sprinkled also in lore and, and, you know, in the Carolinas throughout the Southern Appalachian. There's references of giants in the Bible as well. Yeah. And of course, folklore has lots of little people and sirens and fairies and they're all, and all those are related to little people in some form or format. You know, once again, no physical evidence. And so do these things have an ability to step in and out of our world at certain times? Are they here for a day, a week, a year, three hours? You know, we really don't know. And, you know, and this is where, you know, as we inch towards, I mean, you know, like like one of my dear friends said to me was that, you know, you know, Greg, rest assured, we fully know 3% of the universe. And so, um, so it's something that that's still a learning field that is, is out there in front of us. And, you know, and the thing that I was fortuitous of, and this is what I wondered, was that if this thing came in my encounter, if it came from over the ridge and dropped into the, this area, um, there was water up on the ridge he could have drank. And so instead, it, it was as though he appeared right in the amphitheater. So did I get to actually encounter one of these things when they first step into our world? Okay, now that's one, but another, but another, you know, conflicting one in that is that, or was he cloaking and his ability to cloak made it where I just could not see him, even though he was like, I mean, like literally the little trail I took to go up to the ridge, he would have been like 25 feet from my own feet. And so I don't know how that thing could cloak that well. It was a fascinating um, encounter insofar as the fact that I felt like this thing, you know, was either was either hiding from me and hunkered down there and, you know, just didn't have access to water for several hours, um, you know, or that he appeared through a portal or, you know, however he would come here, you know, in a dimensional way and um, and step into our world. Did he feel smarter than you? Oh, God, yes. Leagues. <laughs> well, yeah. Wherever they're from, if they are from another place, if they do truly exist, uh, wherever they come from must be quite cold. Or our planet is much colder than where they're from, and therefore they have to don a fuzzy suit. <laughs> well, yeah, or, you know, you know, a lot of times, I mean, I think you know, I've read this. There's been some fascinating accounts from this guy, Datus Perry, and he's up in the Southern Washington Cascades. Um, another sort of colleague, friend of mine, uh, Bob Pyle, wrote a book called Where Bigfoot Walks, and that actually he turned into a movie called The Dark Divide, and it has music from the Avid Brothers and 
Um, you know, because he hunts uh, butterflies is what he goes after. But in this case, he got paid. He was one of our guest speakers at our um, at our Field Institute annual dinner you know, back God, almost 20 years ago now. You know, and one of the things he said, you know, as he introduced himself was that, you know, what would be stranger than as if the biped just walked into the room and sat down in the front row was that he got a, a grant from the Guggenheim Institute to study the thing. And so, so he gets into the whole, so he gets into the lore, he gets into, you know, several points. He took on the Yakima stuff, you know, which was up there, you know, in that tribe. I'm, I'm more into the Klamath Siskiyou. And then my other area of interest is, is, is the Olympic Park, you know, in the Olympic Peninsula. Um, and I, you know, just on a side note, I actually collect old Forest Service maps and have been doing this for decades. And I've got a collection of, oh, I don't know, a couple thousand of them dating all the way back to the turn of the century, the last century. And also, you know, another odd thing, too, was that after my encounter, I would develop myself and um, and this is where I met my now ex-wife. But, but we had an insurance business and that gave me some local clout long enough with the, with, with the business community in the little town of Cave Junction to basically gather up a business support for expanding the Oregon Caves National Monument, which, which led me to Washington, D.C. and also meeting the Secretary of the Interior at, at Crater Lake, Sally Jewell, um, you know, and handing packets of paperwork, please, please, please. Finally, bingo! It was like right at the end of 2014, we got we got the caves expanded. So, Have yeah. you met politicians that believe in Sasquatch as a true thing? I mean, they generally would roll their eyes back and say, "Okay, I'm dealing with another one of my crazy," you know. But the guy votes, you know, and he's got other voters. <laughs> okay, but um, but it is funny that um, you know, no, they. They can't they can't bite into it because scientifically it's not there. And any scientist will not touch it because of that fact right there. And so now some have and they've come out and they've risked their career in doing so. It's still this murky world, you know, we get into with this thing. And and you know, the thing that stand in the way of okay, there's no physical evidence, but yet we're still having the sightings, we're still having the footprints, the footprints. You can dismiss probably 99% of them. Um, there was a guy from Texas who studies footprints to catch criminals. Have you ever heard this story? Well, so what it was was that they threw, I don't know, a dozen or so casts in front of him. And um, and and he looked him over and looked him over. And a few months later, he calls him back and he says, all of them are bogus except two. And the two that are not were from Northern California. And then the other one was from the Harrison Hot Springs area there up in British Columbia. And and he said the dermal ridges, the everything about the way the footprint lays and judging by the size of the animal and he, he writes up this whole breakdown. He said, you guys have got something in the Northwest that you don't know about yet. That was his, you know, final conclusion. But he wrote off the, you know, the logger that makes the Bigfoot cast that runs around out there in the snow, you know, making prints everywhere. And, you know, so there's there's a lot of this stuff that's just hocus. But then but then you pin down the real deal. And it's still, you know, it's like it's like that just widens the mystery, especially coming from a guy that's a criminologist in Texas. He does not care whether Bigfoot exists or not. It's it's not on his radar at all. Um, you know, he's there to catch criminals and he's doggone good at it. Do you think if you hadn't had that experience, 
yourself that you would be so into it? Or were you always into it even long before you had the experience? I I feel like the experience just made me closer to the wild nature of um, of the land that I that I've grown up in essentially and love. There was a Sioux Indian elder. I think he had said that you know his desire would be to walk up to one of them and just fingers touching to touch him. And when you do that, you have that power now that that like animals will approach you. And I kind of perfected this just down here in Southern California because I was, yes, I was taking rattlesnakes. I was taking water out to these rattlesnakes. The rattlesnakes, by the way, the Serrano Indians consider them sacred. And so that was good for me. But basically I did this over the course of two hot summers and um, and I'd have them approach me yeah, and they and they will do that, and they're not rattling, and they're not freaked out. No, I don't pick them up. Just be nice, tranquilo. You know, there was a fun connector with these guys, and they're they're very they're so they're so essential to the ecosystem there. You know, and most people go ah rattlesnakes, you know, and they're freaked out. Well, the rattlesnake takes his tongue, and he's and he can sense. Okay, this person's freaked out. I want to get away from him. You know, I mean, yeah, that's that's just nature <laughs> and so and so you know and it's and it's just once again it's this connector you know and i'm a big herp guy anyways and so snakes so, are awesome i love snakes i'm a big big fan i mean like for instance the rattlesnake eats the pocket gopher the pocket gopher has this sack of seeds in him from all the from all the grasses he's been eating so then it gets processed through the rattlesnake comes out and poop that spreads all over the ecosystem that spreads the seed of that plant and so it's like over the course of a hundred thousand years you know this is how the ecosystems formed mm -hmm. and so so their importance is just is just above the pale and yeah it's Fun. Do you feel fundamentally different after your encounter? Does it? Do you think it has changed you in any way? I don't think it's really changed me, other than it 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 really helps solidify my deep love for nature, you know, in all its forms, you know, in all its magic, um, you know, all the different things, and and I sympathize more with animals than I do with people. And so, because I feel like the animal has a strong case. I mean, like Hank the Tank, you know the you know, that big fat bear that was eating up everybody's, you know, food in their houses in South Lake Tahoe. Well, look at how we decimated the forest. First of all, like over logging it. And then from there, here comes the fires and, you know, Hank's down to eating some ants or something. He smells like a goat cheese pizza, you know? And so, and so where would you head? <laughs> yeah, you know? I'm, I totally agree with you there. I understand <laughs> you know a lot about the gold rush and also I wrote it down. Uh, the land fraud trials oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah oh god yeah that's so so what it was was when they were forming public lands or you know carving out public lands from the public domain there was there was all of this it was a free-for-all and there were certain moguls back east james hill was one of them um you know and this was in duluth minnesota and he had a neighbor down the street what was his name oh frederick warehouser okay and so that was quite a happy marriage where you know he grabbed about three entire states worth of land and you know and they finagled it in different ways through the railroad land grants and then from there focusing on the prime timber country you know and and within all of that you also had these these advocates let's start with john Muir, at least bringing the awareness and then from there, you had Teddy Roosevelt, 
And the beauty of Teddy Roosevelt was that he was one of the rough riders. And, you know, and so who wants to go up against, you know, a hardened leatherneck, you know, and this sort of stuff that happens to be president now. And one of his buddies was this guy, Gifford Pinchot, who was a big forester. And the only way that they could get the the Western senators to support it was that basically they had to open it up for, um, you know, for logging, for resource extraction. And so they couldn't lock it up. And, you know, but then in, in some later years, and also even before that, you had these great public parks. Uh, the earliest one was Yellowstone. But actually, the one before that, most people don't know this, is, is Hot Springs, Arkansas. Um, that was actually the first public park because it was a hot spring. Uh, 1916 was the inception of the park service and prior to that they were using like some of the buffalo soldiers and stuff like this to to basically be protectors like in yellowstone from poachers and so forth like that and so yeah and they have early pictures of the black they're like black cavalry you know on horseback um you know protecting the national parks thumbs up <laughs> yeah Oh, yeah, Warehouser owns a bunch of land in the Pacific Northwest. So that would be when we were in high school, we'd go drink beer, you know, up in the Warehouser properties. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, they knew their way around gates, you know, and so, you know, and to keep people out as far as litter bugs and all that stuff. And, you know, but, but it gets into this whole scurrilous tale of basically land fraud and and how these guys like there were the, there were these guys that were the kings of the land fraud rings and they had the support of the local congressmen and they had the support of the local um of the judges on the bench it was quite a fiasco they they caught the king of them and he actually wrote a book called looters of the public domain i'll say it slowly looters of the public domain written by a guy named stephen a douglas pewter sad pewter um, because he had to serve 17 months in the Multnomah County Jail for his for his involvement in these land fraud rings. Um, and it almost took down a, um, it was a standing U.S. congressman that became a commissioner of the general land office. And he actually grew up in Coquille. That was Binger Herman. Um, and then also Senator Mitchell. Um, they were about to indict him, but he died in, in a dentist chair. In, with a heart condition or something like this, uh, 1909. From about the turn of the century, or even like the 1890s, when they when they first started designating these large portions of the public domain into public national forests, and so you know, and then the whole inception of the BLM and how they came about, Bureau of Land Management. But to some of my activist friends, they call it bald-faced lies and mismanagement. That was a different that was a different circumstance. But once again, the mischief taking place there. And you know, all this stuff was happening very early on when we still had these large swaths of public land. But basically BLM, you know, they're normally around mining and grazing. And so, and that's it, it's a different part of the Interior Department as opposed to the Forest Service that was transferred from Interior to Agriculture back in, I think, um, like 1905, like east of the Cascades, where you're more into this ranching and even mining, you know, things going on like this. And, um, and so, as opposed to west of the Cascades, it's a lot more um, suburbanized. 
you know, or, you know, there's, there's still farms and so forth like that, but, um, but it's not, not like it is on the East. And so, and then, and then also where you get families that generationally, you know, hated government. And so that dating back, and yet many of those families, you know, they follow that cycle of boom and bust. Yeah. And that's, that's what we see. I mean, Cave Junction is a classic for that as far as the timber industry, um, their hold on the community. We have this, this massive, you know, legacy of, you know, what we did to native peoples and so forth. But, you know, to speak to that also, if you date back before the advent of the Euro-American that, um, that they were, you know, with squabbles and, you know, occasional wars against themselves. And so, so it wasn't exactly, you know, some, you know, some place of plenty. It was, but the thing there was that there was there was far 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 fewer people involved, and really, I mean, I think the worst thing we ever did to kill off the natives was was just introduce pathogens, smallpox, and so, baby, uh, and purposefully on on blankets and things. But you know what? The native peoples got their revenge with tobacco. It's killed a lot of white folk. That and gaming casinos. And gaming, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tell people how they might find you so that they can sure, get your books sure. and re- look at your research and see about all these things that you do. Uh, Greg Walter, um, my website is theridgewalkers.com. And um, you can find my book, Ridgewalkers in Two Worlds, on Amazon. Or you can order from me directly. I could give my email, gwalter2017 at gmail.com. I'm I'm traveling now, so I'm kind of in and out of my office, so to speak. But I do keep up with my emails and I'll try my, try my, you know, darndest answer anybody's questions. And, and, um, but the book is fun. I had a lot of, I had a great time writing it. It it required a boatload of edits. But what I tried to do was align my first book, The Ridge Walkers, more aligned with what a screenplay would look like. And because I feel like this would be a really good movie, (laughs) I'll send you one. Okay, great. That'd be great. Thank you for being on the show, Greg. And thank you for listening, everybody. And you know what? If you have your own story about experiences with Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, big people, little little elves, uh, shoot Greg an email or shoot me an email because I want to hear about it. I'm going to put links on heyhumanpodcast.com so you can find Greg easily. And thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. All right. Thank you. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.